The following program is from NET, the National Educational Television Network. Debate. James Baldwin versus William Buckley. Subject. Has the American dream been achieved at the expense of the American Negro? This debate was held recently at the Cambridge Union, Cambridge University, England. Let me put it this way. That from a very literal point of view, the harbors and the ports and the railroads of the country, the economy, especially of the southern states, could not conceivably be what it has become if they had not had and do not still have indeed and for so long, so many generations, cheap labor. I am stating very seriously, and this is not an overstatement, that I picked the cotton and I carried it to market. And I built the railroads under someone else's whip for nothing. For nothing. The southern oligarchy, which has until today so much power in Washington, and therefore some power in the world, was created by my labor and my sweat and the violation of my women and the murder of my children. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. And today we're privileged and honored and very happy to have Professor Nicholas Bucola. I uh, hope I got that right. But, uh, you know, Ryan would have screwed it up worse. So That's correct. <laughs> very happy to have you here to talk about your new book, The Fire is Upon Us, about James Baldwin battling and demolishing William F. Buckley Jr. in Cambridge in 1965. Uh, Professor Bucola has uh, written books before on Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, and very excited to talk about a great book and a great topic of uh, importance in not just history, but politics, moral political philosophy. And there's a lot to glean uh, about these two remarkable people and what they have to offer us today. So welcome, Nick. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. I'm happy to be here. So maybe we can start off, you can tell us... Uh, how you got to this topic. And I, I see that in writing about Douglas and uh, Lincoln, there's probably a, a natural, it seems like uh, evolution perhaps, but, but maybe uh, set up the, set the stage for us about how this, this book came to be for you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this book, uh, Baldwin was my path to this book. So I was invited several years ago to write an essay about Baldwin uh, for the political companion to James Baldwin that was being edited by uh, Susan McWilliams. And when I started that project, I had, you know, I was not nearly as familiar as Baldwin as I should have been. Um, and I, I admitted that to Sue when she sent me, the, when she gave me the invitation. And she said, well, the, the essay won't be due for a couple of years. So you can devote a year to reading Baldwin and a year to writing. And so I mm. um, once I got started, I, I couldn't stop. You know, Baldwin is such mm. a uh, such a fascinating figure. And I, I never really read anyone quite like him. And there are mm. a lot of there are a lot of challenges with with Baldwin in terms of like, I was trained, you know, as a political theorist, and there's ways in which he's working in, in a, on a kind of different level than I was used to. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I just couldn't, I couldn't stop. And uh, when I, at some point in that, when I was sort of getting to know Baldwin, I found, you know, the YouTube recording of the Buckley Baldwin debate, and I was just transfixed. I mean, it was such a, 
yeah. dramatic moment. Um, these two guys with such radically different backgrounds with, uh, you know, worldviews that couldn't be, you know, more more different just on this international stage at the apex of the civil rights movement. Um, and so as I worked on the essay for for Sue and th that volume, I kept saying to myself, there's a book in here, there's a book in here. Mm. Um, and uh, and so there was indeed a book. And then at first <laughs> I thought about a smaller a smaller book, you know, that would be sort of focused on Baldwin at Cambridge. There have been a couple books published about Malcolm X traveling to Oxford in 1964. Um, but I, as I started doing the research, I, I realized, you know, pretty quickly that there was this larger story to tell. They're born about a year apart from each other. And I sort of uh, it developed into this idea of a kind of joint intellectual biography set against the backdrop of the rise of the, of the civil rights and, and conservative movements. So that's that's how the book came to be. And, um, yeah, it was it was quite a process, but they were both uh, really fascinating subjects. And they they they're just so prolific. And so I had so much to work with once I had the the format kind of figured out it was the kind of book that although there was plenty of work to be done it was a kind of downhill book and I kind of knew what I had to do yeah um th this maybe is a good that's a good uh, route into one of the, the questions I had or or, or may maybe a it's more of an observation that might be interesting to listeners which was that you know in 1965 uh James Baldwin was a massive international celebrity and you know, they the the undergrads of Cambridge packed this debate hall mainly to see him because he was like the it guy. Yeah. Um, and so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about that and, and what, you know, I, I think he's still pretty well remembered now. But I think that particular facet of his, you know, uh, his life story is, is somewhat forgotten. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point, Ryan. I mean, this is something that, um, and certainly as I began working on the on the book, um, this was something that it you know was an education to me, right? That just getting a sense of just how, you know, the, how high Baldwin's star had ascended by that moment. So in 1965, you know, Baldwin's been you know around as a public intellectual for almost a decade and a half at that point, but his his rise was this kind of steady rise from the late 40s, first as a literary critic, where you know, he begins kind of making a name for himself, critiquing the work of others um, to his first novel, Go Tell on the Mountain, um, and then his second, Giovanni's Room. And these are both novels that are very well received and and definitely people you know are sort of recognizing him as this really significant um, fiction writer, but also, you know, as a writer of nonfiction, his essays, I mean, very early on, um, he gets invited to write, you know, pieces for a lot of magazines on the left. And um, he's he's just sort of has this voice that I think is, was really unique. Um, and so by the time, you know, 65 comes around, he's actually in England at the time to promote the paperback release of his third novel, Another Country. Um, and of course, in 63, the, the Fire Next Time had been published based on the long New York, es or es New York essay that was published in late 62. So he is somebody who, you know, he's been on the cover of Time magazine and, you know, May 1963 is kind of a, a face of the black liberation struggle. Um, and he's somebody who's just, you know, Malcolm, Malcolm X called him the poet of the mm -hmm. civil rights revolution. And I think, you know, what Malcolm meant by that is Baldwin was somebody who, you know, as a writer, although Baldwin was always kind of, you know, his role was always this kind of um, complicated thing. You know, he calls himself a witness. Um, he doesn't like the label activist, doesn't like the label spokesman. But he's clearly there, as you know, Malcolm said, as a poet, as somebody who's writing it all down, who's trying, you know, through his through his writing to capture you know, to the best he can, the sense of what's happening in the country, but also 
to go beyond just capturing it and actually playing a role in bringing about racial justice. So by the time, yeah, by the time they meet at Cambridge, um, the students, as you said, I mean, 700 of them pack into that union debating hall, 500 more in the rooms uh, elsewhere on the union premises. You know, the, the BBC is there. And it's really this international event. And Buckley was definitely a very famous man in the in the U.S. at the time. But the international audience kind of they had they knew through the press coverage leading up to the debate that like uh, basically what to expect, a right wing guy who'd been a critic of civil rights, who's sharing a platform with Baldwin. So they're they're drawn by Baldwin alone, but also they're drawn by the the, you know, the anticipation of the clash that's about to occur. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And this, you know, what an interesting contrast here with Baldwin, who grew up, you know, kind of working class poor in Harlem, um, was, with, you know, with some aspects of, well, actually, the entire aspect, every bit about William F. Buckley's uh, upbringing, which I, you know, I knew sort of vaguely, but not in any detail, but that just he was insanely rich, just a, just an absolute, you know, scion of privilege from his, uh, his, you know, first breath. And, um, you know, sort of what jumped out at me of th- that difference, you know, it because it was reflected in both their their background and in their uh, the debate was that that privilege. I mean, Buckley was just the walking manifestation, a guy, you know, who, who was born to extreme wealth, had servants waiting on him hand and foot, huge estates. Um, and this this, uh, you know, this this black fellow who had to just grind you know, just had to become so good to 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 make it into the sort of upper echelons of society, and also you know draw a whole bunch of lucky breaks at the same time, like anybody must. Um, but you know, when when they're meeting, you just see what a completely tilted playing field that, that the entire society is based on. Is you know, like in this, why is why I'm quite sure that Baldwin won because he had had to work. You know, he he was a much smarter and more interesting and more honest person than William F. Buckley, who was just, you know, like had some sort of wit and, you know, um, 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 charm about him. But at the end of the day, he was not a deep thinker. Right. And and I <clears throat> it seemed like a, a a real interesting, you know, sort of just like like embodiment of the argument itself, their representative biographies, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that's 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 really well put, Ryan. I think that's one of the reasons the story is is so compelling, right? I mean, as you say, I mean, Buckley is somebody, you know, he's born in New York City, uh, and I, I say in the beginning of the book, he made, you know, Baldwin's born in New York City, Buckley's born in New York City, but they may as well have been born on different planets, and in, in the sense that, as you said, I mean, Buckley is born um, to you know to immense wealth, uh, his family owns this 47 acre estate uh, that he spends most of his childhood and he describes growing up there as this you know it's this completely idyllic set of circumstances they've got the you know as you as you mentioned the servants waiting on them they've got live-in tutors so that the Buckley children are homeschooled it's very elaborate homeschooling they get and and essentially you know Buckley has you know as you said he's really the embodiment of privilege in so many ways and his parents, though, I mean, one of the things that's really fascinating about the Buckley upbringing is that, you know, they they provide their their children with, you know, this this, uh, you know, anything a kid could ever want. But one of the things that's very clear is that they have they're determined to teach their children that they have a responsibility to defend 
the, a particular worldview, right? And so that and that worldview, you know, especially coming from William F. Buckley Sr., who was, you know, awash in, in kind of new money, you know, he was somebody who'd made and lost and regained fortunes. Um, and so he thinks of himself, right, at the sort of mythology that he believes about himself is that he is a self-made man and that he, he wants to teach his children that they you know, as elites have a responsibility to defend a particular worldview that made their affluence possible. And so mm. Buckley really, I mean, Buckley never really wants to become his father. He doesn't seem tempted by uh, that life of the the life and business, but he does definitely see his, you know, his goal in life is to defend his father's worldview. And that's precisely what, you know, from a very young age, he's determined you know, and there's, I don't want to get too, you know, psychoanalytic here, but he's determined to please his father, yeah. you know, by way of, um, you know, by way of rhetoric, by way of language. Um, and, you know, it's one of the and kind of interesting parallels in the story is that uh, while Buckley is doing that, right, ever from a very young age, kind of thinking about ways to use words to defend his father's uh, individualism, his father's, you know, elitism, um, Baldwin is somebody who also, you know, grabs onto language at a very young age, but it is, is of course, as you mentioned, uh, language, he's using language in a very different way, right? He's growing up in, in Harlem at the margins of mm -hmm. the margins uh, and experiencing a life that is, you know, marked by domination in all sorts of different ways that he describes so powerfully in, in both his fiction, his, uh, his autobiographical writings, but also his fictional writings, especially in Go Tell on the Mountain, when he describes what it was like um, you know, you know, in a, in a sort of in the semi-autobiographical way through several characters to kind of give you a sense of what that life was like and also what life was like for, for people like his parents who had come to the North, you know, as part of, uh, you know, the Great Migration looking for looking for the American dream, right? And so um, Baldwin, I think, is somebody who then, you know, in, in this very different way is looking, is looking to books, looking to language to try to make sense of his own experience and also to kind of articulate uh, what what life looks like through the eyes of of someone like him, uh, you know, a teenager growing up in Harlem. So yeah, that's that's I think a really powerful parallel in the story. I, I think there's so much in here right now because uh, all of this alights how Baldwin brings up the role of identity and power, and you bring up through this book how their different positions of power and relative privilege or uh, marginalized background informs these obstacles or um, opportunities as you as you just described and there's also the psychological response to to various parents um and for example the, the buckley's mother and the kind of hierarchy that she is operating that gives him the sense that hierarchies natural hierarchies can be just and somewhat serves his uh ideological understanding of how kind of white supremacist uh, patriarchy could be the the kind of civilization that is required to to advance us and uh you know there are a lot of great connections you draw there but um you know, I want to I follow up on, I think, what makes, in part, Baldwin, besides his genius, so much more interesting than um, Buckley, is that the relative positions of power make Buckley basically, uh, as, as you wrote, agree with all his family members about politics. The question of power is basically settled. The, the political goals are, are, are just you know, uniformly agreed to. And all that you have to do is debate each other at the table and win rhetorically, a kind of sophistry to figure out the best ideological or mythological way to justify your domination scheme, right? Your political power structures. And so his whole, uh, you know, act basically is, is in pursuit of the kind of theater that we, we now see Trump successfully doing in a different kind of way, right? Which is just about like, how can I 
you know, use a certain kind of myth-making in the theater to uh, cover up and support these structures of oppression instead of seeking wisdom, right, in, in a real philosophical sense, being a lover of truth and wisdom, and therefore having the sight that an artist, a poet like Baldwin has and is forced to have in order to reckon with the real, the realities of oppression that he can't escape. And, and I think that has some um, you know, psychological, uh, biographical, sociological roots that are very interesting to see in how you have a much more interesting, brilliant uh, artist and speaker uh, and philosopher uh, going up against this just kind of facade of a philosopher, facade of, of, um, of a person who doesn't have to, has the privilege not to look at actual injustice and what it would require to overcome it. Yeah, that's that's great. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a sense in which, uh, you know, that that really is that I mean, you said it beautifully. I don't know how I can say it much more beautifully than that. But I mean, um, to just to 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 amplify what you just said, Alexi, I mean, the 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 idea I mean, there's the Buckley and his his siblings. I mean, they're definitely um, you're right. I mean, that there's not really a moment where they reflect in a, in a sort of serious way about the commitments they've been talking. There's a couple examples of them moving away from their, their parents' views that, that maybe we'll get to later, but that the, um, but yeah, I mean, there's a, a sense in which, I mean, there's this moment when Buckley's at Yale and his, his debate coach suggests to him that he ought to take a course in, in metaphysics. And Buckley's response is I have God and my father. That's all I need. Right. <laughs> um, and so, and that, that cat, I mean, so, but yeah, so part of what they're doing, right. Is they, and they, and Buckley especially becomes a master at, performing this kind of elitism, performing this conservatism. And he is, you know, he's masterful at it, right? This is one thing that's so alluring about Buckley. One of the things I found fascinating as I worked on the book is that a lot of people I talked to, um, especially, you know, of, you know, kind of older generations, they, even if they loathe Buckley's politics, they had this kind of soft spot for him um, because he kind of performed this kind of intellectualism with, that if you poke at it for any extended amount of time, you realize that it's, it is very, very shallow, but he was very good at it. And he does this at Cambridge really well. I mean, one of the cool things about, you know, what we were able you know, to uncover with the research for the book is the BBC recording um, is actually not complete. The Buckley uh, speech is cut by about a third to fit within an hour time uh, period that the BBC had to show um, the debate. Wow. And one of the things that's cut out is a lot of Buckley's responses to student questions. And so Buckley got all these, you know, tough questions from the students during the course of his speech. And, you know, two of one, he's very good at deflate. I mean, these are tough questions. And he is able to deflate the situation with his wit and his charm and make everybody laugh. And then you almost forget what this really tough question was. Um, and so that and that's 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 significant. Right. I mean, as you're pointing out that that his stylistic way of performing conservatism um, in many ways let him off the hook. And in many ways is one of the reasons why he's gotten, I think, this kind of very charitable reading after his death. You know, it's like people always say, I wish we had more William F. Buckley's. Um, but yeah. And then on the other side of that, just quickly, I mean, with with Baldwin, I mean, Baldwin, you know, is is both of you have pointed out. Baldwin says, you know, he really describes so powerfully um, the experience of invisibility, right? I mean, so part of what he describes is the sense in which, you know, um, as someone at the margins, he, you know, uh, people like Buckley have never even noticed he's really there. I mean, Baldwin says, you know, you know, to someone like Buckley, essentially, I'm I'm like a piece of furniture, right? I mean, there's not really a sense in which he's really had to think about what my experience is like. Um, and so Baldwin and part of what Baldwin thinks is so threatening about black liberation and part of the reason he thinks somebody like Buckley is on some level really scared 
is that he's he is scared of being described, right? Baldwin says, "I uh, we on the other hand, we could not treat you as invisible. We've had to watch you very very closely in order to survive, and now we're here and we're ready to tell our story. And that's what scares you more than anything else is we are here to you know tell tell the story and to expose you for what you really are. So those are some of those powerful moments in the and as a as a researcher and as a writer for me were those moments when Baldwin you know, when he's confronting Buckley's go-to guy on race, James Kilpatrick in 62, and he's got this segregationist in front of him, and he's there to interrogate him and to reveal him for what he really is. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, there, uh, this book reminded me of um, a classic review essay uh, by George Shalaba. I think you pr- how you pronounce that? Probably probably not. Probably butchering it. Um but uh, it's it's a review of John Judas's uh, biography of Buckley, and one of the points he he makes in in there is that you know Buckley sort of fancied himself this you know great intellectual, and for his for most of his life planned like a big a big book that he never wrote, which would be like a very weighty, very heavy philosophical defense of his politics. And it's pretty obvious he never wrote it because he was incapable of of resolving the huge contradiction at the heart of his type of politics, which is, you know, ostensibly a defense of, um, you know, social, existing social norms, status quo, status quo hierarchies, um, all the inherited wisdom of the past. And then on the other hand, unregulated capitalism you know which can just 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 rend the social fabric in every conceivable way and um you know those two those smarter conservatives like whitaker chambers you know were totally alive to to how how you know major a threat capitalism unregulated capitalism was to you know the social order um and yet he was just this sort of you know smiling dope um <laughs> But yeah. perhaps to uh, uh, to change gears slightly on the topic of Buckley, one thing that you get into, uh, which maybe has been sort of forgotten to to uh, to you know later generations, is just how fucking racist Buckley was, and how much his politics, which supposedly were this you know era of genteel you know learned conservatives, was really quite prefiguring uh prefigurative of the um you know trump frankly and the, the politics of trumpism and the politics of restricting the ballot box in fact that was an interesting thing i learned from the book because i i i i uh hadn't heard that because i think i what must have watched on youtube the truncated bbc version but in one of those questions if i'm not mistaken buckley says uh, yeah, we should let black people vote in theory, but we should also prevent 65% of white people from voting because, you know, we need only the good people, which is people who vote Republican conservative to be voting, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just to take those uh, those two together, I mean, one thing that's interesting about the um, the Buckley book that was never written, right? The, 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 the big book, as he kept calling it, you know, which he's, he told uh, James Burnham, one of his associates at National Review, you know, I want to write something like uh, Leo Strauss's Natural Right in History. Mm. Um, uh, and so Buckley's Buckley had a title for it, and it was it was going to be called The Revolt Against the Masses. And it was essentially <laughs> in the kind of no, the the kind of notes he had for it, the meetings he had about it um, with some of his you know trusted, you know, uh, you know, uh, colleagues were, were 
essentially what he was what he wanted to write about was a kind of um restoration of hierarchy that he thought was going to sort of play out over the course of the 60s and, and a central part of that restoration of hierarchy was this kind of anti-blackness i mean he essentially sees that the revolt the white backlash against the black liberation struggle um buckley sees you know and he, and he says this in his notes for the book that the you know the white backlash might be the sort of key to a restoration of hierarchy. And so he ends up saying that, you know, rather than, you know, this kind of explanation that he couldn't write the book because he wasn't a deep thinker, he says, I couldn't write the book because my my kind of thesis was proven wrong, that there wasn't a restoration of hierarchy that I thought would happen. So it's, but I, <laughs> it's, a, it's a little bit of, a little bit of both, right? But, but, um, but also I want to say, uh, you know, whatever you think of Leo Strauss, I've read Leo Strauss, William F. Buckley Jr., you, sir, are no Leo Strauss. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think we can. I think we. Yeah, I think I can agree to that for sure. Um, but so yeah, and so but g- going back to you know Ryan's question about the you know the sort of Buckley's racial politics. I mean, this is something where you know I had a you know a, a sense of Buckley's racial politics from some of the great work that's been done by others. Joe Lowndes at University of Oregon um, has done some wonderful work, and, and a lot of others just sort of looking at Buckley and his crew and kind of the the role that they play in American political development and, and racial and on the question of racial politics. Um, but why, you know, what I try to do in the book is really, you know, like look at that and in, in some, in some, you know, really real depth um, and in some slow motion, you know, and kind of really get behind the, the scenes a little bit and look at the inner office memos at national review and look at uh, some of the letters Buckley's writing. And, uh, and so I, you know, in some sense, you know, go um, far deeper than probably anyone wants to go with kind of William F. Buckley's thinking on race. Mm. And I think that, um, yeah, what, what, what is revealed there is, is not only, I mean, so, yeah, Buckley basically saying that his goal when he fo- founds National Review, you know, and it starts in November, 1955. And of course the, the sort of ramp up to the launch in November 55 is really, you know, begins earlier. So you think about, the what's happening in that period in, in terms of American racial politics with, you know, Brown v. Board, the backlash against Brown v. Board, the Southern Manifesto, the the White Citizens Council's rising, um, you know, the the lynching of Emmett Till, the, the arrest of Rosa Parks, the Montgomery bus boycott. All that is happening right in that same two year period when Buckley's launching National Review. And it was not a foregone conclusion that, you know, a conservative magazine being started at that time would be overtly, overwhelmingly hostile uh, to everything, uh, you know, um, having to do with black liberation, there were, you know, of course, the partisan politics were complicated uh, on racial questions. And there were also people who thought of themselves as conservative Republicans who were, you know, at least not hostile to civil rights. People like William Noland is an example that I bring up in the book. But Buckley makes it very clear. And he says this 10 years later on the 10th anniversary of National Review, that his goal was for National Review to be on questions of race, extremely articulate, uh, non-racist, but not reflexively racially egalitarian, right? right. So he has this idea <laughs> that there, and this is very clear. Right? I mean, he succeeds in that goal, right? In the sense, in a sense, right? He, I mean, what he thinks of is is non-racist, right? And, we, and of course, he's wrong. And uh, but he thinks that you're not racist if you're not expressing racial animus, right? For Buckley, that's crucial. And this is where you know uh, Alexi's point earlier about his mother um, is is really important because Buckley. You know, nothing rankled him more than people like his mother who were clearly racist, like she believed in 
you know, the, the sort of biological superiority of white people. But she also believed in this kind of noblesse oblige, this obligation that, you know, white elites had um, to take care of uh, of people of color, especially those who were loyal. Right. Buckley was so upset when when somebody like her mother was, you know, was put in the same category as somebody like George Wallace or a, a Klansman. Um, and so Buckley really believed that his kind of um, paternalistic kind of racism that wasn't rooted in animus uh, was was defensible morally and politically. And so, but with the sort of end result of this is that he goes through this period that I'm looking at in the book, and they are, from the, the word go, they are anti-Brown, they are sympathetic, and, and even in some ways are working behind the scenes with the White Citizens Council. Um, they are writing fawning pieces about people like Strom Thurmond and National Review, um, they're, you know, against the Civil Rights Act. They're against the Voting Rights Act. They're critics of the sit-in protesters. They're critics of the Freedom Riders. Um, and so the the position, right, Buckley is doing this thing with his politics where he's trying to carve out this space for a kind of sophisticated, quasi-intellectual, um, you know, racist politics. And uh, and that, in some ways, I and mean, this is where Baldwin, I think, is so powerful as a lens, right, because Baldwin... Baldwin, you know, sees exactly what people like Buckley are up to, right? And he and what he's what he's here to say is that, you know, in many ways, what Buckley's up to is is far more sinister. Um, and I think the great example, the most powerful example of this in the book, is that debate I mentioned earlier with Kilpatrick, who James Jackson Kilpatrick, you know, for um, folks who haven't thought about him recently, was known as like the leading salesman for segregation in the country. You know, a newspaper editor, writer who's essentially devoted his professional life to being the squire of massive resistance. And um, he is Buckley's go-to guy on race. He's Buckley's link to the White Citizens Council. Buckley is commissioning the right, right pieces about things like the, the Little Rock crisis. Um, and Baldwin has an opportunity to debate Kilpatrick on uh, the Open Mind television show uh, in late 1962. And it's just after the uh, the battle at Ole Miss, right? So James Meredith, uh, you know, Black Air Force veteran, is trying to register for classes at the University of Mississippi and all hell breaks loose, you essentially have an armed insurrection that has to be quelled by the by federal troops. And Buck, Baldwin sits down with Kilpatrick, you know, Buckley's go-to guy on race, uh, just a couple weeks later on, on The Open Mind. And the first thing Baldwin does is he says, uh, you know, you think there's a difference between men like you who write these sophisticated books, but Kilpatrick had just published a, a, a book-length defense of segregation, um, who write sophisticated books and, and you, you, you wear nice suits and you write in all these highfalutin journals. Um, do you think there's a difference between people like you and those those people in the streets who are committing acts of violence in the name of white supremacy? And Baldwin says, I hold you, sir, far more responsible than the people in those streets. You, They are in many ways enthralled to a delusion. They don't really understand this delusion of white supremacy. And you are weaving that web of delusion and you're keeping those people enthralled. So Baldwin says, I accuse you of betraying them, not of betraying me. I accuse you of betraying them. So Baldwin is really here to tell us that Bal the people like Kilpatrick, people like Buckley, um, in some ways, they are far more responsible because they are weaving these webs uh, for purposes that have nothing to do with the poor white people in the South, right? Um, and yep. Buckley makes this very clear again and again in the the period I cover in the book. Yeah, he uh, you 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 mentioned. I mean, this actually, in retrospect, is kind of eerie when um, <clears throat> when Buckley ran for mayor of New York City. Right, he got thirteen percent of the vote, uh, but the thirteen percent he got was not from the well-heeled, you know, 
upper west side bankers it was from like the sort of white ethnic lumpen proletariat who were you know they could hear the dog whistles and they liked a they liked a smart sounding guy who could stick it to the libs you know triggering the libs i mean that's another buckley innovation right he he just loved to provoke people and to be maximally aggressive yeah, that's that's right. I mean, that that's I think that's a really important point. And this is something as I you know I started writing, I started the research for the book in earnest in 2015, and um, and and then I really sat down to start writing in January 2016. And there was a sense in which, and maybe this comes through to to readers that as I'm you know, of course, all these issues being addressed in the book are have been and will you know they have been relevant for a long time. But in the sense of the the urgency of the issues and the ways in which they were you know, so obvious in, in our headlines in ways that maybe they'd been more subtle before, um, you know, it kind of ramped up as I worked on the book and, you know, and, and finally, you know, handed in the manuscript um, in the spring. Uh, and yeah, I mean, this is where Buckley, I mean, in, in this, again, looking at him in slow motion, I think is really a powerful thing to do because you see in, in like late 64, um, you know, that there's clearly this shift happening in American politics and you have Goldwater, you know, who has voted against the, the Civil Rights Act and you have, um, you know, race has is, is clearly become a central, you know, issue in the, in presidential politics in a way that it, you know, it had not been in the in the 60 election in quite the same way. And so what's fascinating about that, and it really anticipates where we are today, is that Buckley, you know, late 64, he commissions um, a special section of National Review on race in the campaign. And in this, in this time when you have the Goldwater, Goldwater is, you know, this, the solid Democratic South, the Deep South, is is now Goldwater country, right? And you have uh, all this criticism of Goldwater for voting against the Civil Rights Act. You have all, you know, questions of voting rights are central in the national uh, discussion. Buckley doesn't devote any of this special section of National Review to any of those issues, right? He, get, he just ignores them. He knows, first of all, he knows Goldwater is going to lose, but he knows that the gold, the, the Deep South is one, right? So why he's he's not going to sort of even consider those issues. Instead, what he does is he devotes the special section first to a framing essay about white backlash and essentially, you know, offers has, you know, the writer offers these kind of philosophical reasons why white back, back white people are feeling marginalized by black liberation and they should be, you know, the article argues. And then two pieces that follow that are one is about busing in New York. And the other is about fair housing law in California, right? Which that same electorate that overwhelmingly supported Johnson in California, many of those same people who were, you know, casting their ballot for Johnson also voted to overturn the fair housing law that had been adopted in 63. So Buckley sees this kind of politics of racial resentment. He also, in that period, although he's not a huge fan of George Wallace, right? He writes something critical of George Wallace in, in 63. In 64, he writes pieces praising George Wallace for challenging Lyndon Johnson in those three primaries and doing quite well. And essentially, Buckley makes the argument, Wallace isn't really a racist. He's not, he's not talking about race. He's getting all the support in these primaries because he's channeling, he, and Buckley calls one of these pieces, the white backlash. And he praises it. He says, these, what people, white people are feeling marginalized. They're feeling like they're being left out of the conversation. And they should be righteously indignant about that. And so Buckley is, is and this is one of the great ironies, right? Is one of the great elitists in the history of American politics ends up being a populist candidate for mayor of New York. Um, yep. And of course, here, here we are today with uh, the, um, well, the, uh, the apprentice in chief, right? I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're reliving this. And of course, Trump's style is very different from Buckley's style. But as you said, Buckley was the thing that Buckley did better than anything else, right? Was he was so good 
at triggering his opponents. He was never good at defending his own views, but he was very good at you know sticking his thumb in, in people's eye and sort of attacking the other side in ways that could get people fired up. He, does, he Again, his style is very different from Trump, but this is something like we've seen this this show before. But in many ways, they're very similar insofar as, as we've kind of pointed out, the, the theater, right? The theater served to disarm and win debate rhetorically without having to make substantive arguments to because there's no actual truth that's being defended in the same way that Trump just demolished people in debates by calling them Lion Ted or using all these tricks uh, of rhetoric in his own vulgar way, right? So, yeah. so it's 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 like a different aesthetic, but the moves are very similar and populist in similar ways. Insofar as you're like bypassing reason uh, to create a certain image of somebody that should be supported because you like who they are and you like their style and you like who they're defeating. Um, that's all very helpful to understanding the appeal and the appeal to 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 people who who perhaps need to um, you know find in this cult leader the the power that they they don't have in their normal lives and to appeal to the the power of like white supremacy in order to feel to not lose the wages of whiteness right um, and that's all very very interesting and important to understand descriptively so that we could kind of diagnose and defeat uh, the enemy that is kind of white supremacy and, uh, you know, fascist politics that's globally in ascendance. But, you know, as they did with the debate, I think we should give more time to the the true genius and poet um, Baldwin. And insofar as in actual substance, the difference between Trump and Buckley is not really consequential, I don't think. Uh, and all the differences that appear to be significant, even though retrospectively, oh, I wish we could go back to the days of Buckley, is in fact bullshit, right? Uh, and insofar as the asymmetry there, where we look back and everybody loved the civil rights movement, everybody loved Martin Luther King Jr., right? That is total bullshit too, right? They were villainized and demonized. Uh, similarly, the actual difference between, say, a Baldwin, and you bring this out beautifully, a Baldwin, a Malcolm X, and a Martin Luther King Jr., the the vast differences in their moral arguments, philosophical ar- arguments, and approach to spirituality, its relationship to politics, to political possibility, the nuance and differences there reveal that these were people of real genius who had real contributions to make and did make because they were connected to to something challenging and and, and beautiful in their struggle. So maybe you could talk a bit about Baldwin and how he related to to those contemporaries uh, that he, um, you know, that you compare him to and and kind of uh, illuminate the relationships among. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I mean, uh, thank you for pulling us back to Baldwin. It's it's hard not to, uh, you know, sort of the the Buckley side of the story um, and a lot of these conversations is is really uh, it's a, it's alluring to talk about, but but we should talk about the the true geniuses you're saying. It's kind of like the and, train wreck that you can't look away from, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And so yeah, and so Baldwin, um, you know, Baldwin is somebody. I mean, and I, I appreciate the the you know the bringing you know King and and Malcolm to the conversation. I mean, one of the things that was really fascinating about this period is that you know, in Baldwin is such a you know in terms of the way he's approaching these questions, he, you know, because he has this kind of tension in himself between um, his what he sees as his obligation as a witness, his obligations as an artist, um, and his obligations to to engage, right? His obligations to try to, you know, play a part in, in moving um, the country closer to to uh, to racial, you know, justice. Um, I think he's really a fascinating character because he's he's somebody who 
is he's elusive, right? I mean, he's not somebody who's ever comfortable being categorized, being labeled, whether it's ideologically, his, you know, his sexuality. Um, he, you know, he wants to definitely challenge us to rethink, you know, the ways we understand race. Um, so, I mean, Baldwin is somebody who is, you know, as I you know, look at the kind of arc from the late 40s to the, the late 60s when the book kind of wraps up, um, you know, he is remarkably consistent um, in the sense that, you know, he really wants us to focus on this nexus between, you know, identity, morality and power. Right. Who is it that we take ourselves to be um, and how does that lead us to treat other human beings and what where. So who has power and who doesn't and how does that uh, and why. Right. And what can we do about it? I mean, those are the kind of the three big questions that I see Baldwin grappling with from his, you know, from his earliest writings um, through through the end. And, and I think Baldwin is somebody who, you know, he because that is his focus. I mean, he and he often gets um, in some trouble, right, uh, with with a lot of people around him in the sense that he, you know, they want him to be more definitive about a particular political question or a particular moral question. But he's he's always there to be at, one of my um, friends, uh, Joel Schlosser, has this great essay on Baldwin called Socrates in a different key, right? Mm. He's he's kind of a Socratic sort of character in that he's he means to be unsettling, right? He has this idea of, you know, his role is, you know, always you know, drive to the heart of every answer to, to expose the question that it hides. I mean, that's really, a, a, that's a Baldwin mantra. And so, but what he does, what that means is as he engages with people like first as a journalist and as a, somebody who's playing this role of witness, as he engages with somebody like King, engages with Malcolm, um, he is of course an ally, but he's also somebody who's, who wants to think through, like he wants to try to understand, like what does the world look like through the eyes of Martin Luther King, who's so young and is placed in this, this position of immense responsibility in the struggle. And what what is Malcolm, you know, what is it that Malcolm, how do, how can we understand, you know, Malcolm's, you know, evolution? Why, you know, why is he um, attracted to the ideas of Elijah Muhammad, who, of course, Baldwin's a little bit suspicious of? Um, and so I think Baldwin is is somebody who, as we think through, you know, what what is this liberation struggle really? And what is it? What is it about? And what is it that's impeding um, not only the freedom and fulfillment of people at the margins, but Baldwin is always there to say, you know, this is a liberation struggle for for everyone, right? This is a liberation struggle that has to do with uh, not only liberating those who are the so-called subjugated, as he calls them in the Cambridge speech, but also the subjugators, the, the would-be beneficiaries of white supremacy are also its victims, which is something that Baldwin, um, you know, wanted to say in his own way that, that it was also a theme in, in King's writing. So, yeah, so I mean, Baldwin. There's so many you know aspects of this we could go into, and I'm I'm you know, and I, I want to sort of allow you to push me in a particular direction. But yeah, Baldwin, I think is really powerful in that he he does um, always push us to. He doesn't let anybody off the hook, right? He's he's there to, you know, he's extraordinarily morally demanding. He always in all these moments of of you know sort of triumph in the black liberation struggle, whether it's a you know a court case or a piece of legislation or an election, you know, Baldwin is always there to say, okay, you know, yes, but like, this is good, but um, I want to know what the world looks like through the eyes of, you know, a teenager at, at the margins of one of this country's ghettos. And I want us to think through, um, how has the world changed dramatically for that person? And what is our responsibility? Um, what is each of our responsibilities in order to change the world and, and make it a, a, you know, a, a more humane place? So uh, those are a couple, you know, scattered thoughts, but yeah, push me in a particular direction. Yeah. Yeah, actually, I you you brought up one thing I, I I wanted definitely to dig into, which was the idea that that um, racism is is bad for white people. Uh, 
and that you know not just bad worse yeah right i was i was just getting to that um which is interesting to me because um you know it's 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 rhetorically it's rhetorically kind of like an interesting sort of jujitsu move um you know uh it 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 contrasts with i would say a lot of uh contemporary discourse and kind of like what i would say like afro pessimism movement uh that i hear from people like tanahasi coates who say that uh you know kind of tend to argue that racism is like a kind of a like it's an objective choice that people have made and it benefits them you know concretely in certain ways um and you know that's that's a thing <laughs> that's the thing i resist because you know it, i'm just like in, in instinctively biased against it because it seems to imply that uh, if I knew it was good for me, I should become racist. Uh, and that's something that I just like categorically reject out of hand. But the way Baldwin does it to say that not only is racism bad for white people, it's actually worse than what happens to white people in the South, to committed racists in the South, is in some ways much worse than what happens to uh, black people there. And so could you could you dig into that for us? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this is something where, you know, I think there's there are ways in which, you know, some of the themes of Baldwin's uh, philosophy, you know, might be out of step with particular intellectual trends and, in, you know, in our current moment. And, and that's, you know, I think that's that can be a fruitful thing, right, for us to think about, OK, here's what Baldwin thought, you know, and he may be wrong, but here's here's ways in which he might, you know, kind of be in tension with certain uh, trends that we see around us. But yeah, I mean, I think on the, this question, you know, Baldwin is, is I mean, it's a powerful theme throughout his writing. Um, and it's certainly uh, one of the key ideas in the Cambridge speech, you know, and Baldwin is really there, as he says at the very beginning, like, I, I feel I'm here as a kind of Jeremiah. I'm here to say things you do not want to hear. And I'm here to deliver a sermon about white supremacy. Um, and part And part of that sermon is to draw our attention to the ways in which you know, white supremacy uh, victimizes both, you know, what he calls the subjugated and the subjugators. And so the on the on the sort of the subjugated side, I think what Baldwin does really, really in a way that's, I think, in some ways subtle the first time you hear the speech, but comes through, you know, more powerfully, the, at least for me, the more I sort of thought about the speech is that the, remember the motion before the House is the American dream is at the expense of the American Negro. And so Baldwin, you know, talks about the American dream and I think a really a lot of powerful ways. And one of the most powerful is to say, you know, he says when he's talking about the impact of white supremacy on uh, its most obvious victims, right, the, the, what he calls the subjugated, um, is that the ways in which first he says it ta he talks about the ways in which white supremacy destroys uh, one's sense of reality. Right. And this that's a very, you know, kind of powerful notion. Uh, you know, what does he mean by that? I mean, part of what he's saying is that there's a sense in which White supremacy um, has this effect of, um, of of kind of communicating to a human being, and, and Baldwin puts this so beautifully and powerfully um, through a millions of details of every day that that indicate to you that your life does not matter, right? That you are a worthless human being. And so, as we think about in this moment, uh, you know, this Black Lives Matter, you know, you know, moment where we're we're thinking through like precisely what that means. I mean, Baldwin captures it so well. And he says, in, the, in terms of the connection to the American dream and, and a way that's extraordinarily powerful, is he says that the ways in which you as an individual 
are being told in, in a million ways that your life doesn't matter as much as, as the lives of others. Um, he says, that's not the worst of it. Uh, the worst of it is that you look at the next generation, right? You look at your son and your or your daughter or your niece or your nephew, and you have no reason to believe that things are going to be much better for them. And Baldwin, and that's a theme that goes back to, you know, one of his early essays, Notes of a Native Son, he describes in 1943 being in the a church in Harlem at his father's funeral, and he, he looks around the room at the, the parents in that, in that he looks around, you know, the, the, the church, and he sees these parents, and he says they're confronted by what he calls an impossibility, right? How do I equip my children for this world? Um, how do I, how do I prevent, how do I provide them with the power that they need to fight back against this world? And he, he says it's, that's something that's just terrifying for, you know, a parent at the margins of society. And so, uh, I think that, and you think about the American dream, right? This idea that maybe perhaps you will not be able to achieve uh, financial success or success in however you define it, but you can like you can have this hope that the next generation might. Baldwin's saying no. I mean, there's really a sense in which, and this is where he he is, you know, um, drawing our attention to the way the reasons why one might be pessimistic, right? Which is really important. Although he does not want us to become pessimistic, he thinks that's important. We keep that in mind. But as you're pointing out, on the other side of that, he says. You know, he gives the example of Jim Clark, right, on the, other, on the sort of the subjugator side, right, the people who are also victims of white supremacy. And Jim Clark in that moment, right, the same night of the debate is that you were in the midst of the Selma campaign, right? So in Marion, Alabama, there are, are you know, African-Americans, um, civil rights uh, activists who are being victimized that very night by Jim Clark and others. Um, and Jim Clark is, you know, being, you know, on newspapers and on television with his cattle prod, using it against, you know, men, women and children in the streets of Alabama. And Baldwin says, Jim Clark, uh, he says he may appear, you know, he is not a monster. He is a human being. He loves his he loves his wife. He loves his children. He likes to get drunk. You know, yeah. I mean, he's a human. Um, and so it's this really powerful moment. The students, of course, you know, uh, can kind of, you know, connect to the, especially the idea of getting drunk. Um, and and so uh, he says, but think about when Jim Clark uses that cattle prod. What's happening to his victims is ghastly. But as you as you pointed out, what's happening to his uh, to him inside of himself is in some ways much much worse. And and Baldwin is what I think he's trying to get at there is that in terms of those questions of identity, morality, and, and power, you know, Jim Clark's sense of identity, his sense of his role in the world, the role he ought to play in the world, the way he ought to use his power, all of that is bound up in this delusion of white supremacy, his sense of worth, right? What, you know, everything for him is that, you know, his job is to go, is to be a guardian of that fortress of white supremacy. And Baldwin is saying, you know, what does that mean about, you know, in terms of his moral life, right? This, this human being is enthralled to this idea uh, and, and that he can never achieve freedom. He can never achieve fulfillment. So when Baldwin said, we have obligations, right? When he writes that letter to his nephew in, in late 62 and is published as the kind of introduction to Fire Next Time in 63, um, you know, he says to his nephew, you know, your like your responsibility, right? Part of your responsibility is to love your oppressor, right? Which is a, and that's not something that, and again, Baldwin might be wrong about this, but for Baldwin, love is not a sentimental thing. It's not a cute and cuddly thing. It's a, love for Baldwin is confrontation. Love is a battle. Love is a war. And so part of what our obli obligation is, is to confront one another and try to liberate one another from the delusions under which we live. So and that, you know, that's messy. And, and I don't know, you know, exactly what that means politically, I think, is a, is a long and difficult conversation that we are, I think, engaged in uh, hopefully every day. And that's what Baldwin would tell us we have to do is we should argue with each other. 
and try to figure out what it means to try to liberate one another because that's 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 a very complicated thing. Yeah, the uh, the uh, just a side note here. Um, I was just recently listening to a, a Martin Luther King sermon in which he talked about the the three different Greek words for love, mm-hmm. and there is eros and one i can't remember philia philia and, we're in philadelphia city of brotherly <laughs> loves like so erotic love uh brotherly love and then and agape that's right right yeah and he's and and so the the when when he's when the martin luther king's reasoning love your enemy love the the white supremacist jim clark that's the agape kind of love which is that you you love in his view you love the that that person because all people are are made in the image of god and so you know you are you are required not not to like them you may hate them in fact in 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 the sort of brotherly love sense you you may some people are very hard to like but uh you know it, it's a, it's an interesting you know powerful kind you know you see how that that uh, kind of reasoning could be so um um kind of uh influential in in, in uh, allowing people to 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 do these sort of nonviolent protests and so on and perhaps transformative and so you know you mentioned the importance of debate but but I wonder if part of the reason it, it, that Baldwin didn't want to be pinned down in any way he he said I'm not I'm going to be called a materialist a marxist a socialist gay straight uh there is something about his message, it seems to me, of love and human dignity and the need to understand that if you see the fullness of humanity in everyone, that will transform you, transfigure you in a way that will bestow dignity upon all people and that will prevent you from attaching yourself to this you know, white supremacist or American exceptionalist or any other ideological or even, uh, you know, poser religious uh, garb that helps you justify and rationalize the oppression and the domination of, of other human beings. Uh, there's something so interesting to me about how um, what's really needed is epiphany. And, there, and it's not for nothing that a person that doesn't really claim to be religious is nonetheless very spiritual and presents himself in this debate, right, from the outset as Jeremiah and giving a Jeremiah, right? Okay. Like what people need. In, and so in this, this, you think we're a debate here. We need somebody to win rhetorically. We need argument. We need reasons. And he's like, no, we need a prophet, right? We, we need somebody to get people to transform themselves entirely because they will conclude, he says it's a loaded question, because they will conclude whatever logically follows from their position and their system of reality that they've kind of taken. And so unless you pull the whole... Uh, transformation uh, over someone, or, or unless you pull somebody through that, they're they're just going to reason from within that worldview and stay in their position of power. Yeah, yeah, those are yeah, th- those are both uh, really, really, I think, important points. I mean, the the sort of you know comparison to King's philosophy of love, and and also, yeah, this idea of um, you know Baldwin. And this comes through really powerfully for folks who haven't checked out. Uh, you can listen to some of Baldwin's. Um, he has two debates with Malcolm X in 1961, uh, and there's there's one that's really really powerful where it's Baldwin is is on a radio show with um, one of the student sit-in protesters is there as well, and it's it's like a, I think it's most, one of those powerful exchanges that at least public exchanges with Malcolm where you you know this is that's like early Malcolm right where he's like you know he's 
he's there um, in part to, you know, kind of like they're invited onto the show together because, you know, the host knows that they will be in some tension, right? That Malcolm is going to be there to criticize the nonviolent method, to criticize the nonviolent philosophy, and that Baldwin is is going to be there to at least um, provide Malcolm with some pushback. And, and one of the things that's fascinating about that exchange is, I think, relevant to um, to the, what both of you just said is that you know Malcolm or you know Malcolm does his thing right in a very powerful way, and Baldwin um, does a couple things that I think are really you know just sort of classic Baldwin. One is that you know, he he's he very early on. Right. Although Baldwin is not a conventional political theorist, he's he's doing you know doing political theory right there before our, before our eyes, because he listens to um, he listens to the sit in protester, this guy, Laverne McCummings and, and Malcolm go back and forth a little bit about what their understanding of, of what, you know, sort of black liberation is about. And Baldwin says, you know, I hear a lot of words flying around this table, freedom, democracy, justice that aren't it's not entirely clear that we know what they mean. So I want to push both of you in, in the also this word integration, like what do we mean by integration? and Why is that a good thing? The word equality, right? Baldwin was always kind of, you know, he raises some questions about whether or not equality should be thought of as a, a sort of central moral goal. And, you know, he's worried about it in particular ways. He, of course, believes in it um, in certain fundamental ways. but He's also worried about it as a sufficient moral goal. Um, but yeah, and then he, and then he, by the end of the conversation, and he and you know Malcolm have had some you know pretty tense exchange. Um, you know Baldwin says, you know I want to say something very reckless, which is that um, you know essentially all theories are suspect, all theologies are suspect, all ideologies are suspect. I what I want for human beings is for I, you know, and he says for me, I want to be able to confront the world as me to try to deal with the world. Um, you know, in each day, in each moment, in as dynamic a way as possible. And so, you know, that, again, is, is a reason that a lot of people, you know, Baldwin gets, I think, some pushback later in his life um, for, for, for that kind of um, resisting particular ideologies and so on, because, you know, people get frustrated with this, this, this elusiveness. They want to know, okay, are, you know, are you with us or are you not with us? You know, we need a program here and you're, not, you're kind of raising all these questions. But that's part of what Baldwin's, you know, that's Baldwin's genius. It might be one of Baldwin's reasons to critique Baldwin, but he really was there to raise these questions. And um, and yeah, just to try to challenge us to to think through, you know, these questions in a way that was deeply philosophical and deeply rooted in this idea of human dignity and and always kind of there to, you know, to sort of, you know, cause us to be suspicious of, you know, of particular ideologies and, and so on. And so, I mean, there's a really, you know, there's a really important moment that captures this and I'll just, I'll, and I'll stop talking, uh, is, is like, you know, he talks about, you know, the one, one of his essays on Richard Wright, he talks about the influence of, you know, people like Simone de Beauvoir and, and Sartre on, on Richard Wright. And, and Baldwin says very explicitly, he says, I never, I never liked, you know, that, that crew, I never trusted them. And his kind of, his one line explanation of it is, that I worried that ideas mattered to them more than people, right? So, I mean, Baldwin is like deep, deep humanism, and whether or not that's true of Sartre and de Beauvoir is for maybe for another show, but it's, but it's, it's a powerful, you know, for, for Baldwin, right? As he perceived it, that was always the danger is if we, if ideas become more important to us than human beings, um, then that was where, you know, he thought human dignity was, was threatened. And that's, Again, that's complicated. That's frustrating, but I think it's something we need to grapple with if we're going to grapple with Baldwin. This is getting good. Uh, <laughs> just a quick follow up to that, if you don't mind. I, you know, it seems to me quite obvious that Baldwin unmasked Buckley in that debate for a number of reasons, outclassed him. But I think, it, do you think there are lessons that can be drawn if we see Buckley as representative of those 
privileged elites who are trying to shape kind of the superstructures, the the hegemonic ideologies that justify, rationalize, and serve uh, the status quo oppressive forces uh, of of the state and capitalism today. Um, how that was so easily dispensed with, um, not just by a person of, of genius, but by someone drawing on that kind of moral, spiritual, philosophical complexity and drawing on uh, all of that we just talked about in terms of what Baldwin had uh, to offer. So is there something for us politically today and individually and collectively that we can learn about how to combat those elites, those people, those ideologies that we're fighting against? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I, I worry a little bit when I do the, the kind of um, shtick I just did about, you know, about Baldwin as this kind of um, skeptic and so on that, um, you know, I don't want it to come across like he's this like, you know, Michael Oakeshott or something, you know. No, um, no, yeah, he's, he's not a trimmer, right? Like, <laughs> that, that's not, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, or, or David Brooks or something. Um, yeah, I mean, because, right, because, because, right, and this is the big, the big but, is that Baldwin at the same time, right, is, is, is a radical, right? He is a radically... He's a radical thinker. Um, his his moralism is is about as radical as as you can get. And in some sense, he is a kind of radically democratic thinker. So, like to tie those two things together, um, you know, Baldwin is somebody who, as I mentioned before, is always pushing us to you know to think about these these political questions, you know, from the margins of the margins, right? And, and, and as, as you pointed out earlier, in some ways, like his by you know his story, right? His autobiography, the person that he is. Um, helps us understand, you know, why from a very young age he was very sensitive to right thinking about things from the margins of the margins of the margins, uh, and and so where what does that where does that take us politically? I mean, part of what Baldwin, uh, I think that part of one of the things he does, I think really powerfully is, you know, he pushes back against a certain kind of politics that you know we might call liberal politics of concern, right? So he, you know, in the Cambridge speech and in his writings and elsewhere, and we know just from experiences in his life. There's a kind of liberalism that he associates with the Kennedys and to some extent with Lyndon Johnson that he kind of feels like, you know, some of their intentions might be good, but he often feels like they treat people of color as like, you know, statistics or a problem to be solved as opposed to as as human beings. And there's obviously ways in which Baldwin's also uncomfortable with a kind of politics that I was describing before that is, you know, um, from Baldwin's perspective, kind of so ideological that it seems to be um, abstracted from reality. But so where does that leave us politically? I mean, where it leaves us is if we take this idea of human dignity seriously, then part of what he, I think Baldwin thinks it means is that we, as we as we are attempting to free ourselves from delusion each and every day, each and every moment, um, we are, he hopes, getting a sense of our own power as individuals uh, and our own power collectively. Right. So when he when Baldwin's out there in 1963 delivering you know, what essentially is his stump speech, right? So he's at the height of his fame. He's, you know, Fire Next Time is on the bestseller list, you know, for 41 weeks and essentially 63, much to the chagrin of his, you know, his his agents and so on. And, you know, he's out there speaking. I mean, he's, he's really in the kind of mode of, uh, even though he doesn't want to be a spokesman, he's out there on the road. And, and when he's out there on the road giving these speeches, he's, you know, this is a moment, right, when you know, Kennedy is in office and, and, and there's a kind of a feeling that the, that the sort of history is shifting in a progressive direction. Baldwin is, is out there still with this kind of skepticism about politicians, uh, a kind of skepticism about being too bound up in like whatever piece of legislation is the latest you know, thing that we're talking about. All those things are important. Right. He's not he doesn't want to say we should ignore 
legislation or court decisions or or you know uh, elected officials. But he but he's really the theme of those speeches politically is he wants to say to people, look, you have the power to change you know the society in a very direct way. So the example he gives in in sixty three is like he's trying to convince people. Like he says, I don't want you to go shop. I don't want you to go Christmas shopping. Like I don't. I want you. I don't want you to go Christmas shopping this year. I want you to communicate with your behavior, your dissatisfaction with the the state of this country. Um, and he's when he's you know he's talking about the march on Washington. He wants that to be as radical a demonstration as possible. I mean, he, you know, he, and he, there's examples of things that he would like to see happen. Direct, you know, forms of direct action that you know he's very you know in some ways he's celebrates the march on Washington. There again, he wanted the march on Washington to be far radical than it was. Um, so yeah, I mean, Baldwin is this kind of radically democratic thinker in that way. Uh, he really wants to call on us to, you know, as if, if we recognize our own power as human beings and our power to act collectively, I mean, he thinks that's really the key. And I think we're, we're going to, you know, and I've, I've just been spending time with my students. I teach a class called What is Freedom? And we, um, you know, just spent, you know, uh, last, last week reading, um, uh, Taylor's wonderful book on on Black Lives Matter, and you know I, I really sense a lot. You know, in that in that book and what Taylor's describing, I think what she's advocating. You know, she's thinking about what you know what liberation really means, and part of what she's getting at, I think, is is very much in the spirit of of what I think Baldwin is getting at, getting at this kind of radically democratic vision. So yeah, I mean it, it's it's you know, and I have people you know I've, as I've been traveling around talking about the book, saying what would Baldwin think of this 2020 field of candidates, and I mean. <laughs> You know, and, and I mean, and there, there are I don't want to dismiss the question altogether, because I think there's some ways in which, you know, because of, uh, you know, a lot of grassroots um, things that have happened in this country over the last few years, there's a kind of, you know, political conversation happening among elites that in some ways Baldwin would, I think, be, you know, excited about. But he would always be there to remind us that the elite conversations are always you know, going to be of secondary importance to the, the kinds of things that are happening on the ground. And. And so that's a, a kind of a thing that I think is really important that that Baldwin reminds us to do, right, is that each and every one of us has this responsibility for trying to confront our history and take responsibility for it. And so that's that's kind of the central Baldwinian message. And exactly what that means for each of us is going to vary considerably. But that's something Baldwin you know, calls on all of us to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just have one more question. Um, do you do you think that uh, you know, I think one of the lessons of <clears throat> uh, Buckley is that, you know, the power of like, like ideology to shape people's minds. And, you know, his, his ideology was, was very cramped and very, you know, it was not particularly defensible in, in, in logical or empirical terms. But you see, Ryan, white supremacy is okay if there's no hatred or, or racial animus. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. I'm being nuanced. <laughs> <laughs> precisely um but do you suppose that 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 baldwin may have gone somewhat too far in the other direction you know and and, and i see it like i certainly sympathize with his sort of instinctive knee-jerk skepticism of anybody in power you know or any any sort of like movement you know what he said like i'm i'm maybe immune to indoctrination or something like mm -hmm. that uh right. but like you you see the, the 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 kind of utility and the you know the organizing force of a kind of like way of seeing the world you know that that is you know 
you could have nuanced versions of it or simplistic versions of it. It was just to say that like, you know, um, something like, uh, you know, Christianity or, or, or Marxism, Leninism, you know, like, like these, like they, those had a, a social power, which, which were, you know, far in excess of their, uh, uh, you know, like kind of philosophical, you know, def- like, I, it's not like they were ironclad, uh, uh, philosophically, I suppose. Um, and do you, do you think that he maybe missed that in terms of, you know, the way that people think about themselves, um, which seemed to be a subject he was pretty concerned about, um, and that people, you know, need ways to interpret the, the world rather than just like, I'm skeptical, you know, about, about anybody who seems to be selling, you know, any, uh, any type of slogan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good question. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, the, as you pointed out, I mean, there's a way in which, you know, yes, we're looking, bring, bring Buckley back into the conversation for a second. I mean, as Baldwin looks at, at somebody like Buckley, right. Buckley is, uh, is, is always, it's funny cause he accuses Baldwin of being, um, you know, thoroughly ideologized and of being, you know, having this kind of <laughs> radical, uh, philosophy um, in their their encounters, but in fact, right? I mean, Buckley is is the one who is uh, has taken you know ideological thinking to this extreme, and in a, in a way, I mean, Baldwin is there to you know in a more powerful way than than uh, you know is 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 just sort of beyond comprehension how powerful it is because Baldwin is you know is there to say you know Buckley is saying to us like you know the core of my political philosophy is the inviolability of the individual. And Baldwin's like, really? Uh, let's talk about that. Um, you know, let's talk about what like the Judeo-Christian tradition that you claim to be defending means to you. Let's talk about the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, all these things. Uh, and and of course, you know, in fact, right, Bald, you know, Buckley's you know understanding of those things is is thoroughly ideolo- ideologized to the point where, um, you know, he built into his understanding of these ideas is this kind of exclusionary philosophy that that reveals that he doesn't really believe in those things at all. But yeah, I mean, and so the question though is is does Baldwin um go too far in the other direction? And that that I think is a is a really important question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. I mean, I think that one thing we see with Baldwin and I, I kind of wrap I mean one way I was able to avoid the, having to engage this really hard question in the book is um is I, you know, the, the kind of narrative wraps up more or less in 68 with the epilogue kind of looking back at some of their legacies. And one of the things that's challenging with the kind of late Baldwin is he is kind of, you know, in, in some ways um, attacked from the, from the left, at least some folks on the left and is, is uh, for, for precisely this reason. Right. I mean, one of the things that, that a lot of folks uh, want to know, you know, and this is, you know, so he gets some, you know, some people wondering like, why is it that white people are willing to listen to you, James Baldwin, you know, should we trust you? Um, and also this question of like, you know, can we really, fight back against, you know, the these various systems of power without ideologies that can help us make sense of the world and figure out what to do uh, in order to change the world. And so I think Baldwin, you know, there's some ways in which, you know, I'll put a plug in for um, Eddie Glaude has a book coming out in April about late Baldwin. And so definitely you should have Eddie on your show. Uh, sure. and, uh, and- That'd be great. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'll put in a plug for y'all um, for sure. But yeah, Eddie, I mean, Eddie's going to grapple with like, you know, sort of Baldwin, you know, through, uh, you know, the kind of the later period in his life. And and I think that one thing that's that's clear is that Baldwin, you know, and he says, you know, in, in uh, a few places that um, he recognizes that there is a kind of utility to, to ideology. There is a utility to theology. 
Um, and then he doesn't want to, you know, call on people to reject those things altogether. I think what he wants to call on us to do, though, is that, you know, if, for example, you know, he gives the example of like, uh, I think in a conversation or reflections on, you know, the Black Panther Party, you know, he's sort of supportive, like he will he'll go to fundraisers, he'll, you know, sort of um, say things rhetorically supportive of the Panthers. But, you know, he and, but when it comes to the sort of ideological questions, um, he will, you know, offer some general um, support, but it'll also be there to kind of raise issues and talk about, well, okay, how do we, you know, how do we apply this idea to the world? How do we do it in a way that's humane and so on? And so I think Baldwin is kind of there to be, you know, he always wants to say to us, like, a as we reflect on our own ideological and, and theological commitments, um, he's just, you know, he wants us to constantly be engaged in this kind of, you know, Socratic kind of questioning of ourselves and of each other. Um, and I think that part of and the, the way we're doing that is not just to be annoying skeptics, right, but to be always cognizant of the fact that, you know, whatever political doctrine we're talking about, whatever moral doctrine, whatever religious doctrine, uh, you know, he's always going to be there to ask us about, you know, really the inviolability of the individual, right, the freedom and fulfillment of the individual, Baldwin says, as early as, you know, some of his earliest writings, 1948, he says, my, I'm, my primary concern is the freedom and fulfillment of, of the individual. And so any sort of theology, any sort of ideology that you present to me, um, I'm always going to be asking us to come back to that question. So I think that's, and I don't know if that's fully satisfying, but I think that, um, you know, in the moment we're having now with the political conversation, I think we're, you know, in, in our own clumsy way, we're grappling with those questions of how do we take this commitment to justice and bring it down to the ground. I love that. And I love that you just taught a course um, called What is Freedom? And I, you know, later on off, uh, off the pod, I'd love to, to talk to you about your syllabus and all that. But, but this question of what, what freedom is and, and the relationship between the individual and the collective, because I'm not going to you know, do one of those, would Baldwin have joined DSA questions or something? But like, <laughs> I, I do think like democratic socialism wrestles with emancipation and, and, and liberation in terms of the relationship between the individual and the collective, and, and do you think Baldwin also, as much as he was focused on the individual, understood that individual freedom is bound up with seeing the interconnectedness uh, amongst us in the collective and the, necess the, the necessity for us collectively to think and act differently? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is one of the things that uh, is really powerful, you know, about Baldwin's, you know, moral and political thinking is that um, he is somebody who is, uh, I think, is 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 very um, sensitive to, you know, not only our individual. In some ways, he's like this radical. You know, he's a very radical individualist in a particular sense in terms of his desire to see us, um, you know, kind of create ourselves and and um, and feel like we have the power, you know, every day to sort of remake our identities and 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 you know, he I think he wants to liberate us to do that. Um, but but he also sees that you know we are situated right and we are situated as social beings and that we need one another right and this is a theme that he comes back to again and again in his um you know in his in his writings is that you know in order to engage it's not like you know we're we're sort of off you know this introspective the socratic thing baldwin's doing he's not imagining us kind of off you know reflecting on these things by ourselves he's not i mean obviously that's part of part of you know the human experience but i mean he really is somebody who i mean baldwin and when i think of baldwin like you know, everything I've read about Baldwin in terms of, you know, the biographical writings, I mean, Baldwin's, you know, ideal, I think, 
is is you know he wants us to be engaged you maybe have a couple of drinks and uh to have these really honest conversations i yeah i, I see you got your beer there i, I should have brought mine up <laughs> we should have told you uh, next but, time next time I, I, I know next time absolutely uh but yeah i mean ba- i mean baldwin you know and i don't mean to be you know frivolous about it. i mean baldwin really these moments when we could have you know really serious uh conversations about um, the things that matter, right? From the individual level of what our individual identities are and, and ways in which we need to rethink our identities each and every moment, but also ways in which, you know, our, the relationship between our, our sort of individual identities and the collective. I mean, Baldwin, you know, in terms of the kind of the message of, of something like the DSA, I mean, Baldwin is very much interested, right? And this is something he says in the Cambridge speech is that, you know, we, we, we can't, we shouldn't pretend that we as a society uh, don't have the power uh, to remake ourselves in radical ways. I mean, he gives the example of, you know, New York. He says, you know, if you go to, if I take you to New York and we can see the ways in which that city is constantly remaking itself collectively, um, and then we see the way parts of that city um, are being neglected, right, or invisible to many people with power in that city, um, Baldwin is, is is giving that example because he wants us to think about the ways in which we are making through those millions of details of every day, we are making decisions that shape the kind of opportunities that individuals have for freedom and fulfillment. So our collective responsibility uh, to one another is is very much a powerful part of his message. And so all these things I've been saying about his skepticism of, of ideologies, I think need to be, that needs to be, you know, there's a big asterisk there, which is that Baldwin feels this very strong sense of collective responsibility that we have um, in order to to create conditions under which human beings can flourish. And so exactly what that looks like politically, I think he, you know, he would say to us, we've got to sort that out. We have an obligation, though, to sort that out. Yeah. Well, that's, that's beautiful. Yeah. And that I, that's a good place to leave it, I think. Yeah. Thank you um, for writing this book and for giving us an opportunity to to do just that, to think about the ways we can be collectively responsible to fight <laughs> the the fascist white supremacists uh, that are supporting this oppressive system and to think about the, the beauty and wisdom of those in the past that have uh, been brave and, and uh, powerful and they're, and they're fighting against it. So thank you so much for, for joining us and talking about that, Nick. And thank you for this book. Thank you, Alexi. Thank you, Ryan. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the show and what you guys are doing. Uh, this is, this is, I, I hope that, I hope that um, the show lives for forever. You guys are doing great work. So. <laughs> oh, that's so, awesome. Uh, keep- Keep it up. And it's a very, it's a very Baldwinian enterprise. So, uh, so. <laughs> I love that. I, yeah, I don't know yeah. that we've got a better compliment than that. So that, that's beautiful. <laughs> oh, by the way, everyone, beautiful hardback book, also audiobook. Uh, yeah. if, uh, if you're, you're not into the, uh, the exercise that comes with lifting a heavy book. Yeah. Yeah. It's called the fire is upon us. James Baldwin, William F. Buckley Jr. And the debate over race in America by Nicholas Bucola. <laughs> how do you do how do you do ryan is infamous for, for i love it i love it i love it <laughs> thanks my friend it's been uh, a real pleasure hope right. you come back uh before too long and thanks. i'd be happy to thanks guys i really appreciate it thanks for listening everybody last but not least we have a friendly reminder that we have a patreon you can support the show with five dollars a month and get an extra episode every week uh we really appreciate the support and it helps us keep this going 